Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Willy, Harry, Steve, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Ned's Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, then who, Edward's four, five, Dick the Bad, Harry's twin, and Ned the Lad, Mary, Bessie, James, Evane, Charlie, Charlie, James again, William and Mary, Anna Gloria, our one and only Queen Anne. And it has to be said, despite being a one and only, Anne isn't one of those queens that many people know very much about. I mean, I think things did change a bit with the release of the film with the wonderful Olivia Colman as Queen Anne, uh, the favourite, which I think gave people something of a way into Anne and her life. But, you know, I think traditionally she's better known for the architecture and the furniture named after her, like Queen Anne houses or Queen Anne dining chairs. This architecture that reflects what was going on in the world, ideas about art and architecture and what is beautiful and what a beautiful house should look like. Queen Anne houses are very symmetrical. They tend to be brick with stonework around the doors and the windows and the corners of the houses. Very elegant, very kind of cool, not overheated like the Baroque or the Gothic but look at me already, I've got sidetracked and I'm talking about Queen Anne architecture rather than Queen Anne the person. Although perhaps in some ways the Queen Anne style of architecture does reflect Queen Anne's reign in that she tried to make things neat, orderly, well-organised and balanced, very English, not making a big fuss about things, not letting things get out of proportion, not letting one wing in government get stronger than the other. So, Queen Anne. She was born in 1665. She died in 1714. She was only 49. The Stuarts all seemed to die relatively young. 
James II lived a bit longer, but to 50 seemed to have been a sort of bad age. A lot of people, and it's probably my age, uh, are talking to me about Sniper's Alley, this kind of decade where if you make it through to the end of the decade, you'll probably live to a ripe old age. And depending on the age of the person coming up with the concept, the actual decade of Sniper's Alley changes, whether it's your 50s or your 60s or 55 to 65. But in this period, it seems pretty much that Sniper's Alley was between 45 and 55 if you were a Stuart. But come on, let's <laughs> get back to Anne. She ruled from 1702 to 1714, so it was about 12 years. And actually, some extremely important things happened politically during her reign, which she was instrumental in pushing through. So she was by no means a sort of ineffectual ruler who should be swept under the carpet and quietly forgotten. The most momentous thing that happened was that in 1707, her parliament passed the Act of Union, where Scotland, Ireland and England were officially joined as one single entity under one monarch and one parliament. It was the birth of Great Britain and ultimately led to the concept of the United Kingdom. And you know what? I wish they hadn't called it Great Britain because it's led to so much bullshit ever since. This idea of, well, we're Great Britain. We're really great. They wouldn't have called us great if we weren't great and we need to be great again. But it doesn't mean Great Britain as in, oh, isn't Britain great? It's simply referring to the landmass. It means Greater Britain. It is the British Isles. Up to this point, Britain technically was just England and Wales. But once Scotland and Ireland are officially joined, it is Greater Britain. And I wish they'd come up with another name for it, like Large Britain or something. So we wouldn't have these reactionaries and bigots banging on about, well, we're Great Britain. Let's make Britain great again. But back to Anne, which I must do not keep going off piste and in many ways had a sad life i mean she underwent 17 pregnancies in 17 years but none of her children survived to adulthood many were stillborn many died in infancy three of them lived a little bit longer but they were all taken by the grim reaper and the one central fact of her life which is very vivid in the film, the favourite, is her friendship with Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, as played by Rachel Weiss. Now, my expert later on in part two is the historical biographer Ophelia Field, one of whose books is about Sarah Churchill, and it's also called The Favourite. And so she'll be able to fill me in on the details of Anne's relationship with Sarah, because she and Anne became very close friends. And Sarah had a huge influence on her life. Whether or not they were lovers, I will save to discuss with Ophelia Field later on. But they were incredibly close. And this friendship was very much at the heart of Anne's story. And indeed, our um, traditional picture of Anne and what she was like comes from Sarah Churchill, who wrote her own memoir in which she was actually very unkind to Anne because by the time she wrote it, the two of them had fallen out and Anne had died and Sarah was trying to settle old scores. But people took this at face value for a, a long time until more recently when she's been re-evaluated by, well, by historians and writers like Ophelia Field. 
And as I say, Sarah Churchill was the Duchess of Marlborough. She was married to this guy, John Churchill, who became the Duke of Marlborough after a string of military victories. And he was this other really, really important person in Anne's life. It's quite interesting. When we looked at uh, Queen Mary, there was this period, a short period when Mary was on the throne, where essentially she was dealing with domestic affairs. She was kind of running the country back home while William was off fighting around Europe. And this is quite a similar setup that we have in Anne's reign, that she is at home dealing with Parliament and John Churchill becomes her kind of King William figure, that he's off fighting for her around Europe and gaining immense political power, which meant that he was often very unpopular with the Parliament of the day. And Anne was closely involved in the politics of the day. And she was really plugged in to what was going on. She was a major patron of theatre, poetry, music. The composer Handel was the court composer. She was interested in art and architecture and science as well. She knighted Sir Isaac Newton. Now, Newton was an amazing figure. I could devote a whole episode to him, but I don't really have the time and the space to go into him here. So... If I get round to doing a parallel series, I will definitely cover Sir Isaac Newton, who was an extraordinary man. His contribution to science was immense, mind-blowing. And it's a shame that for most people, his story has been reduced to the incident of the apple falling on his head and him discovering gravity. And the other big thing through Anne's reign, and I touched on it just now, was war. We have the War of the Spanish Succession. Now, I will get on to that in a minute and explain what that was all about. But this was the huge thing that was happening in Europe at the time. It's interesting with these wars. There are so many of them. As soon as one stops, another one starts. So you've sort of got the Seven Years' War, the Two Years' War, the Nine Years' War, the Anglo-Dutch War, the Franco-Dutch War, the War of the Spanish Succession, the War of the Austrian Succession. They're never ending. And, and, you know, you can follow them right back to when these countries originally sort of solidified into being separate states. And, you know, we talk about the Hundred Years War. It wasn't like people were fighting every day for hundreds of years. Often there would be years between any actual conflict. And in a way, you could see all of these wars as one giant war, one immensely long war called, I don't know, the European War. But it makes it easier to break it down into these discrete chunks. So as I say, Anne was born in 1665. Her father was the Duke of York, who went on to become King James II. Her mother was the commoner, Anne Hyde. And Lady Anne's actual education seemed to be fairly basic. We saw how in the Tudor period, a lot of these women had really excellent educations. It was considered important. But it seems that by this time, things like sewing and embroidery are given more importance than languages or science or history, although she would have had a bit of that. She was plagued as a child by this eye problem, excessive watering of the eyes, which was known as defluxion. And in 1669, when she was only four years old, she was sent to France to live with her grandmother, uh, Henrietta Maria, who is Charles I's widow. She was a French princess. And after Charles's death, she retired to France. 
But Anne's not been with her for long when Henrietta Maria died and Anne was passed over to her aunt, Henrietta Anna, in 1670, and she died also. And young Anne became known in France as Le Baiser de la Mort, the kiss of death. No, she didn't, actually. I just made that up. And I actually don't think the French even call a kiss of death Le Baiser de la Mort. Anyway, Anne is brought back to England, uh, where she's brought up in Richmond with her sister Mary in the household of Lady Frances Villiers. And we saw how this peculiar thing happened there where her sister Mary got obsessed by this older girl and started writing her very passionate letters claiming to be her wife and that Anne joined in these letters claiming to be this other girl's husband. So you can see how these incidents in Anne's life build up to create the image that she perhaps was a lesbian, despite the fact that she loved her husband and they were obviously sleeping with each other or she wouldn't have had 17 pregnancies. So Charles II seemed to be much more in charge of Anne when she was a girl than Anne's own father, James II, who is very much the junior at court. He is the spare. He is the Duke of York. He is also viewed with suspicion because of his Catholic tendencies. So Charles says that Mary and Anne are brought up strictly as Protestants. And James has no say in the matter. And it's while Anne is a girl in the household of Lady Frances Villiers that she first meets this older girl, Sarah Jennings. Sarah Jennings, who will eventually marry John Churchill and become Sarah Churchill and ultimately the Duchess of Marlborough. And interestingly, John's sister Arabella was one of the Duke of York's mistresses. So Anne's father, James, had, as was expected of a royal, this string of mistresses, but he didn't seem to have chosen them for their looks. And his brother Charles was always taking a piss out of him for this. Arabella was considered plain, but quick-witted. He seemed to like the company of smart women. And this image of Arabella persisted until she fell off a horse in public one day and showed her legs. And everybody was amazed. My goodness, she has marvellous legs. Who would have thought it? And she had four children by James, who became known as the Fitzjameses. And one of them was an ancestor of Charles Spencer, who's been my guest on a couple of these episodes. I'm on a slight detour, but James was Anne's father, so this is slightly relevant. One of his other mistresses was this woman, Catherine Sedley, who was trying to explain James's obsession with her, said, It cannot be my beauty, for he must see I have none. And it cannot be my wit for he has not enough to know I have any. So, yes, James was considered a bit of a thicko. And he carries on being a typically disruptive Duke of York in the royal household, uh, when in 1673 he comes out as a Catholic and in the same year marries Mary of Modena, Anne's mother having died of smallpox. Mary of Modena is only six years older than Anne and three years older than her big sister Mary. And when James introduced these three girls to each other, he said, I have brought you a new playfellow. So that all seems rather dodgy. But over the next 10 years, Mary of Modena had 10 children, but all were either stillborn or died in infancy, which left Mary and Anne second and third in line of succession after their father. And it seems that Anne actually got on quite well with Mary of Modena and James was something of a loving father. In 1677, Anne's big sister Mary 
married William of Orange. Anne missed the wedding because she was quarantined in her room with smallpox. So there was no wedding celebration for her. It's all a bit like like um, COVID. I know so many people who missed weddings back in the day because they came down with COVID. But luckily, like Anne, uh, none of them actually died. Unlike Anne's guardian, Lady Frances Villiers, who contracted smallpox and died. There was a lot of it around. A year later, Anne's friend Sarah Jennings married Churchill. And a year after that, her father was exiled to Brussels because of his uh, dangerous Catholic leanings. Uh, Charles didn't want him around court. And James then moved to Scotland where Anne visited him. And that was her last time out of the country, out of England, a visit to Scotland. She was plagued all her life with very bad health problems. And people have tried to get to the root of what it was. At the time, a lot of it was attributed to gout, but it looks like it was probably more likely to be a form of arthritis. But she also had other problems. And there's a strong consensus that she may have had lupus, which uh, which I think is a sort of autoimmune disease where her own body was attacking herself. But suffice to say, she she was not well. She had a lot of problems. It led to immobility. She had a leg ulcer in later life as well. It got so bad she couldn't actually walk around by herself. She was carried around in sedan chairs. And she also did have a little one-horse cart, which apparently she drove madly and wildly around palace grounds. But, you know, this lack of mobility led to her becoming uh, obese and she turned to, well, she turned to sort of comfort eating. And so things like foreign travel were pretty much out of the question. In 1680, her second cousin, George of Hanover, visited the royal court in London now, George is a descendant, a quite distant descendant of Charles I via his eldest daughter. And it seems that at the time, the English were considering trying to perhaps make a pact with the Hanoverians who, who ruled a small part of Germany. It looks like King Charles might have been weighing up cousin George as a potential husband for Anne. But the Hanoverians, I don't think, were particularly keen on that idea because at the time, James is pretty much in disgrace and, and has been sort of, it's almost an exile in Scotland. He's not really considered an heir to the throne. So when some people claim that George is there to kind of be sounded out and to sound out Anne as a possible wife, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. But that became the sort of narrative that there was a possible marriage between the two. And apparently they got on quite well, but um, it didn't come to anything. And there was a bit of scandal. This older courtier called Lord Mulgrave was flirting with her and perhaps trying to get Anne to marry him. He denied the gossip, but he was temporarily dismissed from court. He later married this woman called Catherine, who was the daughter of James's mistress, Catherine Sedley, the one who mocked him for being stupid. So Mulgrave is also a descendant of Charles Spencer. So who is Anne going to marry? James has no say in the matter. Charles is still organising things. Everybody in Europe is looking for the best country to make alliances with. So Mary has already married William. So we have this kind of Anglo-Dutch union. But 
<laughs> the daft thing is that Charles is now thinking, oh, the Dutch are a bit too powerful now. We need to do something to counteract that. So uh, he looked to Denmark, which was becoming quite a wealthy and powerful nation at this point. And they are also Protestant. So Charles is thinking, OK, a marriage alliance with Denmark, another Protestant nation, would act as a sort of counterbalance to William's power. And also the French would be amenable to this. And Charles, as we saw in his episode, was always trying to keep the French on side. He always had strong Francophile tendencies. So Anne is married off to this guy, George, Prince of Denmark. He's the younger brother of their king, Christian V. And George is a Lutheran, so no danger of becoming a Catholic He's 11 years older than Anne. He had trained as a soldier. He's certainly a better prospect physically than William of Orange. He's not exactly a hunk, but he's better looking than William. In fact, almost everybody in Europe was better looking than William. And he was dismissed as a bit of a non-entity. Charles II famously said of him, I have tried him drunk and I have tried him sober and there is nothing in him. And George suffered from asthma from wheezing. And um, Lord Mulgrave said of him that he was forced to breathe hard in case people mistook him for dead and buried him. So he was, as he was dismissed at court as an, an entity, but it seemed to me that he was just a nice bloke and he didn't want to overshadow his wife. He didn't want to do to Anne what William had done to Mary and saying, look, I've just married you because I need the English on my side. You mean nothing to me. George devoted himself to Anne he was like a sort of Dennis Thatcher figure. Dennis Thatcher had been a very successful businessman, but he was happy to put himself in the shadows of Margaret Thatcher and be supportive of her. Similarly, I suppose you could say uh, Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth. He accepted his position as a consort, although he uh, had more, shall we say, personality than George. George is so much of an entity that he doesn't even appear in the film of The Favourite. But, you know, with his relationship with Anne, you could say that he was a proto-feminist. And as I say, he, he stuck by his wife and supported her and supported her in Parliament, even when in private he may have disagreed with some of her views. William of Orange certainly didn't respect him and during his reign never allowed George any particular power or, or senior positions at court. It seems that he and Mary were suspicious of there being a second power base in court. It's interesting. When I do these um, episodes and I come to a monarch who I didn't previously know very much about and I, and I look into them, I often warm to them. Um, and that was, certainly was the case with Queen Mary. I didn't warm to her husband, William, at all. But Mary herself, I felt, was quite a sympathetic character. But it's interesting looking at Anne... And her relationship with Mary and seeing Mary from Anne's point of view, I have slightly revised my opinion of Mary because William and Mary ganged up on Anne and George. They didn't want another powerful family at court. But Anne and George were given a royal residence, a set of buildings in the Palace of Whitehall known as the Cockpit. And it was called that because it was, uh, well, because it had been a cockpit, a place where people went to watch cocks fighting each other. But it was a nice suite of buildings and they seemed to be pretty happy there. And Sarah Churchill was appointed one of Anne's ladies of the bedchamber, which is Anne's kind of inner circle. Anne very quickly became pregnant after the marriage. 
unfortunately, the baby was one of her first children to be stillborn. But then over the next two years, she gave birth to two healthy daughters, Mary and Anne Sophia. In 1685, Anne's uncle, King Charles, died and her father, James II, took the throne. Anne, who'd been brought up as an Anglican, was very disappointed in James that one of the first things he did was to start giving important positions in the military and the government to Catholics, going against the Test Act that Charles had passed. And James, well, it's not really so much that he was trying to promote Catholicism as that he was trying to promote religious tolerance and saying, look, let's put our differences aside. Does it really matter what type of Christian you identify as? Only a couple of years later, in 1687, Anne had a terrible time. She miscarried again. Her husband, George, caught smallpox and their two young daughters, Mary and Anne, died of smallpox. So this must have been absolutely devastating for Anne. Luckily, George survived, but this led to this pattern of disappointment and heartbreak with all her pregnancies and her children. To make matters worse, Mary of Modena became pregnant for the first time since James had come to the throne. And James's daughters, Mary and Anne, exchanged letters. They were suspicious that the Queen was faking this pregnancy. And Princess Mary claimed that, that there may be foul play. And these suspicions, these conspiracies, led to this massive conspiracy when Mary of Modena eventually gave birth to a son, James, that it wasn't actually her child. It was a commoner's child that had been sneaked into her bedchambers inside a bed-warming pan. Anne wasn't there for the birth. She had had another miscarriage and she was recuperating in Bath. But it's a birth of this child, a male heir, a Catholic heir to the throne, that sparks the so-called Glorious Revolution, where members of Parliament plot with William of Orange to bring an army over and dethrone James. And Anne and Mary both turn against their father, largely because they are strict Protestants, but also because this new son, little James, if he is allowed to join the line of succession, would take precedence to them. Both of their claims to the throne would be knocked right down the ladder. So William comes over and one of the crucial things that happens is that John Churchill switches sides. He had been a supporter of James II. He is a very influential military man. He's leading a large part of James's army. But his wife, Sarah, is a very good friend of Anne. And I think John Churchill also saw which way the wind was blowing and that he would be better off siding with William of Orange than with James II. But anyway, Anne and Sarah Churchill and John Churchill basically plot together and say, look, we're going to support William against James, and Anne and Sarah have to do this sort of moonlight flit from London so that they're not caught up in things, just in case uh, it all went wrong and James stayed in control. But James was heartbroken when he found out about Anne's desertion. He cried out, God help me, even my children have forsaken me. But Anne seemed to display no emotions at all, no great concern for her father and what she'd done. Mary, for the rest of her life, was sort of racked 
by guilt over this and not so. And on the evening of her desertion and when James was officially ousted, she basically carried on having her usual card games. Various bills and acts and laws were passed when William came to the throne, officially making him co-regnant with Mary. He wasn't a junior partner in this. And in the same year, Anne successfully gave birth to a son, Prince William, who became the Duke of Gloucester. He was ill, but he survived infancy. Seems Anne did manage to find a couple of decent doctors to look after him. And because William and Mary had no children, it looked as though Anne's son would eventually inherit the crown. But as I said, William and Mary were very suspicious of this rival power base at court. Sarah Churchill helped Anne negotiate all of this. She became her right-hand woman. She seemed better versed in court intrigue. And they became very, very close friends. They even started calling each other Mrs Morley and Mrs Freeman. Anne was Mrs Morley and Sarah was Mrs Freeman. Uh, this was so that they could have a sort of equal relationship. It wasn't queen and subject. They were just two ordinary women. When William and Mary came to the throne, they initially rewarded John Churchill for his support, made him the Earl of Marlborough. But then they became suspicious of him too, fearing this was another potential power base and potential rival to them and, and feared that he was plotting with the Jacobites against them. And so he was kicked out of all his offices, banished from court. And Mary also banished Sarah, saying she was persona non grata. Anne was furious about this and very defiant. And she very openly took Sarah to a big party at the palace, refusing to dismiss Sarah from her household. And she wrote to Sarah about it. Anne, it seemed, had always hated William. And she wrote, Can you believe we will ever truckle to that monster who from the first moment of his coming has used us? And I'll paraphrase a bit here. But suppose I did submit to him. How would that Dutch abortive laugh at me and please himself with having got the better? No, my dear Mrs Freeman, never believe your faithful Mrs Morley will ever submit. But as a result, for sticking by Sarah, Anne was also punished and had privileges and staff taken away from her. And the effect on her was the same as always seemed to happen when she was put into stress. She gave birth to another son who almost immediately died. Mary came to visit her, but instead of offering sisterly comfort and kindness and support, she had a go at her for her friendship with Sarah Churchill. And the two sisters never saw each other again. And sadly for Anne, things don't get any better for her on the pregnancy front. In January of 1700, she miscarried a male child and the doctors told her it had been dead inside her for a month. And that was her final pregnancy. And sadly, in that same year, 1700, her only surviving child, William, the Duke of Gloucester, died. He was celebrating his 11th birthday on the 24th of July, and six days later he was dead. Possibly of smallpox, possibly of some other fever. He wasn't a healthy child. He also had this weird swelling on the back of his head, this liquid-filled lump 
and it's possible the doctors had tried to interfere with that and caused some kind of infection. But anyway, he dies on the 30th of July and, and Anne never really recovered. And as I said, she never again became pregnant. The next year, in 1701, Parliament passes this thing called the Act of Settlement, which is an attempt to clarify how the line of succession actually works. And it states that if neither Anne or William, by any future marriage, produce any heirs, the crown of England and Ireland will go to this woman, Sophia, Electress of Hanover, and her Protestant descendants. Now, the government has had to work through a list of, I think it's over 50 members of the Stuart family who have a greater claim to the throne than Sophia, Electress of Hanover. But they're all Catholics. Catholics from the various branches of the Stuart family coming down from King Charles I. And crucially, Sophia is a Protestant. This is setting in law that no Catholic can come to the throne. And it's, it, it's, it's a pretty desperate measures. You've got this weird little offshoot of the family who have this tiny bit of land in Germany called Hanover. And Sophia, who rules there, is told... Yeah, if nothing changes, you're going to be next in line to the English throne. Sophia tries to make arrangements to come and visit England and stay at the court and perhaps be all ready to be installed. But William and then Anne afterwards make a big effort to keep her out of the way. They don't want yet another power base at the royal court. In that same year, Anne's father, the ex-King James II, becomes the XX King James II and dies. His widow, the former queen, Mary of Modena, got in touch with Anne, who had, it seems that Anne had sort of promised her that she would try to restore James's line to the throne. James and Mary of Modena had had this son, uh, also called James. And Anne, it seemed, had said, oh, yes, yes, I'll make sure that if I don't have any boys, uh, James will be on the throne. But this act of settlement completely negates that. And Anne says, I'm sorry, my hands are tied. There's nothing I can do about it. And then the next year in 1702, King William dies. And he is not greatly mourned. Anne, however, is a very popular choice for Queen. People seem to be overjoyed when she came to the throne. And she made a big show in her coronation speech of saying that she is very much an English queen, English through and through not some bloody Dutchman. And she said the line, I know my own heart to be entirely English. And she had this thing that a lot of monarchs have, but they genuinely sort of feel that they are the mother or the father of the country and that they are looking after the country and everyone in the country loves them. I guess they start to believe their own press. And she puts her husband, George, in charge of the Navy and John Churchill is given overall charge of the army. Anne Churchill's wife, Anne's best friend, Sarah Churchill, gets a load of promotions and new titles. She is made groom of the stool, mistress of the robes and keeper of the privy purse, which are probably the three highest and most important positions in the royal household. Anne's health doesn't get any better and she has to be carried to her coronation in 1702 in a sedan chair, unable to walk. So John Churchill is becoming more and more important, particularly when in 1702, 
England joins in the war of the Spanish succession. This is a huge war over who is going to take the throne of Spain. The inbred Habsburg Spanish royal line is dying out. The feeble-minded Charles II is on his way out and he is childless. There's no direct heir to take over. Charles nominates Philippe of Anjou, a Frenchman who is a grandson of Louis XIV of France. This is not a popular choice with the rulers in the rest of Europe because it would unite France and Spain into one massive power base. But there is another claimant to the throne, Archduke Charles of Austria. And so he's not Spanish either. And this leads to war over who's going to take the throne. The Austrians, the Holy Roman Empire, whatever you want to call them, the English and the Dutch gang up on one side. This is the Grand Alliance. And on the other side, we have France and Spain. And this war basically engulfs the whole of Europe and spills over into the Americas, where all these competing entities have colonies and ends up dragging on for years. It's extremely costly, violent and destructive with some huge and very bloody battles. In the end, looking ahead, it's the French who get their man on the throne. Philip of Anjou becomes the new King Philip of Spain. But by that point, France and Spain are exhausted, broke. The war has cost them a fortune and they're not the powerhouses they once were. At the Treaty of Utrecht, they are forced to agree not to unite the two countries. The Dutch haven't fared well either. They're beginning to lose their power and significance in Europe. But it does go quite well for the English, who are now this modern business banking and trading nation. And it goes particularly well for John Churchill, who proves himself to be a brilliant and audacious general. But we'll come on to all this properly in a minute. So while all this is going on, Anne is having to deal with being queen. She's having to deal with Parliament firsthand for the first time. And when she came to the throne, the parliamentarians were rubbing their hands thinking, great, we've got a weak and unwell woman on the throne. She'll basically do whatever we tell her to. But it wasn't to be. She seemed to be as able a politician as her older sister Mary was, and after a slightly shaky start, she quickly takes control. And much as she did with Mary, this comes down to playing the different factions off against each other. We have the Whigs and the Tories who are constantly at each other's throats. In a nutshell, the Tories are more backwards-looking traditionalists. They were pro the Anglican Church and pro the interests of the landed gentry, the country set. They supported the idea of a strong monarchy and many had Jacobite sympathies. And they're certainly not as doggedly anti-Catholic as the Whigs, who are more Republican and favour commercial interests and would like Parliament to have complete control. But essentially, as always seems to be the way with politicians, both sides pushed for whatever policies would benefit their own personal gain and help their friends. And Anne seemed to be very good at dealing with them. She tried to keep the status quo. She tried not to come down fully on one side, which would upset the other side, which would cause them to work against her. She did lean towards the Tories and her friend Sarah Churchill kept trying to force her towards the Whigs. 
and the Whigs were greater supporters of John Churchill. They were greater supporters of the war. The Tories didn't really want to be involved in this war. And Anne became increasingly disaffected with Sarah Churchill. Increasingly felt that Sarah Churchill was trying to push her around, boss her around, take control. While Sarah is claiming that most Tories are secret Jacobites, while Anne tried to remain a moderate. But on one occasion in 1704, she did remove many high Tories from office when they refused to support the war. And on a later occasion in 1710, she did the same to the Whigs when she lost patience with them. So a lot of this was to do with funding the war. At the start of it, she was very supportive of John Churchill and put pressure on Parliament to fund it properly. But the longer it dragged on, the more she lost heart. Churchill's greatest success came in 1704 when he had this amazing victory at the Battle of Blenheim. He had been put in charge of an Anglo-Dutch army and whilst the Dutch troops were reluctant to leave Holland and thought of themselves as a defensive force, Churchill used them as an attacking force. In only five weeks he marched his army 300 miles southeast to engage the French. And he would march between kind of three o'clock and six o'clock in the morning, pushing them on as fast as he could so that nobody was aware of what he was doing. And when they came to ultimately engage the French army, the French were completely unprepared. This was the first of several military victories for Churchill, and he became famous for these kind of lightning attacks, for the fast manoeuvrability of his troops. And they were very well-trained troops, which made a big difference. English soldiers had been a bit of a laughing stock in Europe for a while, but Churchill changed all that. The troops were properly trained and equipped, and they were well supported with their own supply lines. Unlike the French who raided the surrounding countryside and foraged, Churchill properly supplied his troops, brought his own rations with him and planned ahead. At one stage on that initial forced march, when he was moving this huge army, uh, sort of in the early hours of the morning before the sun was properly up, to keep things as secret as possible. He arranged for cobblers in Heidelberg to make replacement boots for almost his entire army, and they were ready and waiting for him when he arrived. The victory in Blenheim changed public opinion and kept England in the war. Churchill was promoted from the Earl of Marlborough to be the Duke of Marlborough, and a grateful nation gave him a gift of this land in Woodstock near Oxford, and the money to build a palace, which he did with the renowned architect Vanborough. He built what became known as Blenheim Palace. And it is a humongous building. It's absolutely enormous. It's like a small town. And it is the only non-royal building in England that is called a palace. You can go and visit it today. It's an extraordinary place. And it was the birthplace of Winston Churchill, who was part of the same family 200 years later and if Churchill hadn't had an older brother or if his older brother had died he would have ended up as the Duke of Marlborough and probably wouldn't have entered politics at all. So Marlborough's position was greatly enhanced but Anne and Sarah were falling out more and more. Sarah kept saying this was simply because she was the only person in the household who dared to tell Anne the truth but Anne as I say just felt that Sarah was interfering too much. And it's around about this time that Anne starts making friends with Sarah's first cousin, Abigail Hill. And she replaces Sarah as Anne's favourite. She is the favourite 
that the Olivia Colman film is about, as played by Emma Stone. And she, as in the film, becomes more and more influential and gets closer and closer to the heart of Anne's court. And Sarah is increasingly forced out. And rumours start going around that the relationship between Anne and Abigail is, uh, shall we say, a little bit scandalous. And it seems that Sarah Churchill herself is one of the main propagators of these rumours. She directly accuses the Queen of lesbian tendencies, which, of course, didn't endear her to Anne. The beginning of the end seems to be when the two of them have this massive row outside St Paul's Cathedral in front of everyone. Anne is not well. She's exhausted from nursing her husband, Prince George, who is very ill. They've had a long coach ride. Uh, Sarah wanted Anne to wear these heavy clothes and heavy jewellery, and Anne declined. And they're having this argument outside the doors of St Paul's, and Sarah snaps at the Queen, be quiet! And that's pretty much the end of it. Anne is not having this. Not long after, Anne's beloved husband, George, Prince of Denmark, who's been quietly and solidly supporting her in the background, dies. He's not yet 60. It seems he was finished off by a combination of his asthma and dropsy, which is fluid retention. I think it's now called edema. Anne was absolutely devastated and Sarah didn't help. She turned up at Anne's royal apartments and started removing pictures of George, saying Anne shouldn't have anything to remind her of him. It would make her too upset and that she should pull herself together. Pretty soon after, Anne removes Sarah from her life altogether. Now, there's a lot of detail in Anne's life. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of things going on in Parliament. There's some tedious controversy about appointing bishops, which, quite frankly, I cannot be asked to get my head around. I'm sure some of it is desperately important, but I'm afraid I find most of it desperately dull. But suffice to say, you know, Anne is dealing with all these problems with the Whigs and the Tories and, and all that malarkey. And there are these two rival politicians who play a big part in her reign. Sidney Godolphin, a Tory who becomes her treasurer and political mentor, and Robert Harley, who started as a Whig and ended up as part of the country party, which I think was a kind of a Tory offshoot. Harley was, in some ways, Anne's prime minister, although there was no such position at the time. And I'm sure that Harley and Godolphin did all sorts of interesting and important things. And if that's your bag, just look them up. I don't have time for it. I also don't really have the time to get into all the ins and outs and the battles and manoeuvres of the War of the Spanish Succession. Suffice to say, Anne gets fed up with the whole thing. The expense, the bloodshed, the fact that there doesn't seem an end in sight, any way out of it. And if the Austrian contender for the throne, Archduke Charles, does take power, then that would be someone else to go to war with. Because if the Austrian contender for the Spanish throne manages to get crowned, then we'll just have to go to war against him, because that would be another powerful person in Europe who's not English. But the Whigs are still trying to promote the war and prolong it, and John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough, particularly is trying to keep it going. 
But the appetite in Britain is dwindling. And finally, in 1709, we have the Battle of Malplaquet, where the Anglo-Dutch army lose about 22,000 men. Now the Grand Alliance is thinking this is too much. It's not worth it. Anne and the British Parliament and the British people turn against Marlborough. They want no more of it. And this leads ultimately to a ceasefire and both sides sit down to negotiate a peace treaty. The Treaty of Utrecht. The treaty is not desperately favourable to the English. It's a bit of a compromise all round. But some things are settled. As I said before, France and Spain agree not to be united into a single entity. They will also accept the act of succession in Britain and not press for James II's son, bedpan baby James, to be King of England. And they grant some land rights to the British, including giving us Gibraltar in the far southern tip of Spain, which is still a British territory. The other concession the British get is that they can sell an agreed number of slaves to the Spanish annually in South America. At this point, the Spanish have a complete monopoly on trade with South America, which is extremely valuable. And the British have been trying to elbow their way in for some time. This concession is a first small step. And a slave trade was a ghastly, horrible, horrible business. And I really want to do a separate episode following its history. So look out for that. But as I say, the Treaty of Utrecht is not a glorious success for the British. But as far as Anne was concerned, it was peace at last. And she could get on with trying to... I mean, you know, you know, she was quite a modern queen. She could see that what was important was stability, that business was going to be able to run well, that trade was going to be able to run well. She didn't really want these massive wars. She didn't want disruption to that. As I said before, the conception of Anne that most people have stuck to until relatively recently was that she was a weak queen and not a good ruler. But most of that came from Sarah Churchill's memoirs. But although England was now at peace, Anne was not. She was growing increasingly ill and she had such a horror of death that she couldn't bring herself to sign her will. She died intestate, which meant that her estate was absorbed by the crown. At least she had agreed to who was going to take over, Sophia, Electress of Hanover. Sophia, who had waited all her life for this chance and had kind of lobbied for it, unfortunately died before she could come to the throne. And her son George came to the throne as George I, as we will see in the next episode. And Anne suffered a series of strokes And on top of all her other health problems, her poor beleaguered body gave up. She died at the age of 49. So that's Anne then. We will let her go, release her poor tortured body from its earthly torment. She was laid to rest in Westminster Abbey in the Stuart Vault where... Oh, Oh no. Wait a minute. Stop. Stop. Bloody hell, I've completely forgotten to talk about the most important thing she ever did. Her crowning glory, I mean, figuratively her crowning glory, literally her crowning glory was, I guess, being crowned. But no, the biggest thing she pulled off, a hugely momentous thing that was as important historically as 
Well, actually, it was probably more important in the long run than the beheading of Charles I and the creation of the Commonwealth under Cromwell, because as soon as Cromwell died, we had a reset and pretty much went back to the way things had been, restoring the monarchy. But Anne brought about a momentous change that affects us still today. This was the Act of Union in 1707. Technically, the Acts of Union, plural. This was the official unification of England and Scotland, the birth of Great Britain, the first step on the road to becoming the United Kingdom, as we are technically known today. Anne had been passionate about trying to unify the two countries. The Stuarts, after all, were a Scottish family, heavily anglicised by the time of Anne's reign. But nevertheless, her roots were in Scotland and in the Scottish royal family. Her great-grandfather, James I of England, had been James VI of Scotland. Now, there was a strong movement in England to unite the two countries, partly, it has to be said, to stop Scotland being a threat, but also because it just made sense. And there were certain parties in Scotland who felt the same way, but not everyone by any means. Now, unification eventually came about after England and Scotland had spent a bit of time firing rival acts at each other. You could call it the War of the Acts, although no one else has ever done. But I might. Anyway, so it it begins with the Act of Settlement in 1701. This was after Anne's son, William had just died, and the Act decreed that Electress Sophia of Hanover would succeed as our next monarch. And the Scottish Parliament turned around and said, hang on a minute, we haven't agreed to this. We're not having some German telling us what to do. We're going to choose our own monarch, thank you very much. We're a separate country, after all, a separate entity. We're not bloody English and we're not bloody German. We're going to find our own Protestant successor descended from a Scottish king. And we're going to withdraw our troops from Marlborough's army in the war of the Spanish succession, unless you agree to all this. So what do you say to that? And massive apologies to any Scottish listeners for my terrible Scottish accent. So what did the English government say to that? Well, they said, OK, if you want to be foreign, Jock, we'll treat you as foreign. And they brought in the Alien Act, which essentially said that all Scottish nationals in England were going to be treated as aliens. In other words, as foreign nationals. And this affected Scottish estates in England as well. It brought in difficult questions of inheritance. Uh, But there was more than that. There was also a trade embargo, which meant no more free trade between England and Scotland, combined with an embargo on the import of Scottish goods. Now, about half of Scotland's trade was with England. So this was a pretty serious threat. And there were echoes of Britain's relationship with the EU here and the debacle of Brexit. We went from all being friends in a common market with common trading and no barriers to working and living. You know, if we were British, we were able to work and live in Europe and vice versa. There were no barriers against people from the EU living and working in England. It made absolute sense. Europe is on our doorstep. It's 20 miles from Dover to Calais. Well, I mean, I mean, well, more than that, we're part of Europe. Although some people try and pretend we're not. 
So to suddenly cut ourselves off was economically nonsensical and, frankly, ruinous. Now, the Scots didn't choose for the English to impose the Alien Act, but suddenly they're foreigners and aren't able to enjoy free trade with their closest trading partner. In fact, Scottish trade with England is completely blocked. And the British also blocked the export of arms, horses, ammunition, cannons, whatever, to Scotland to make it much harder for the Scots to put together an army and invade England in retaliation. And there was money involved. The English also started bribing influential Scottish ministers to agree to a union, lining their pockets. And there were many Scotsmen, it has to be said many wealthy urban Scotsmen, who wanted this union. It offered the opportunity for Scottish parliamentarians to become part of the English establishment, to be part of the English Parliament, which was much more powerful and influential and wealthy than the Scottish one. It offered them the chance to be at the heart of this newly blossoming British Empire, which was starting to explode with wealth from trade, from business, from banking. And so, with a combination of bribery, economic blackmail and coercion, the Act of Union was forced through in two stages. The Union with Scotland Act was passed in 1706, where the English Parliament agreed to union with Scotland. And then the Union with England Act was passed in 1707 in Edinburgh, where the Scottish Parliament agreed to union with England. And so it was that England and Scotland became one entity with one parliament in London, a state of affairs that persisted for 300 years until the Scottish independence movement insisted that Scotland had its own separate parliament again. But Scotland is still part of the United Kingdom at the moment, along with England, Wales and Northern Ireland. At the time of the Acts of Union, the whole of Ireland was under British rule and in the words of the treaty, we were all united into one kingdom by the name of Great Britain. Anne was overjoyed. She really felt this was an achievement. And it was. It was a hell of an achievement. There were still many Scots who hated the idea and felt that Scotland had been betrayed and diminished. And there were also many English people who felt that England had been diminished, watered down that the English people had to share everything with the Scots. England was no longer a sole sovereign nation. It also meant that the Union Jack, which had been part of the British naval flag for some time, uh, this combination of the crosses of England, Scotland and Ireland into one combined image, it became adopted as the national flag of Great Britain. So <laughs> I'm glad I got that in. Uh, and yes, yeah, so where was I? Yes, Anne was put in a tomb in the Stuart Vault at Westminster Abbey, which seems to be the only vault they have in the Abbey. And the Stuart Vault, I mean, it's not a particularly large space. You can't even visit it. But that's where all the Stuart monarchs are, in a hole under the floor. So join me after the break when I look at Anne's life in more detail with Ophelia Field. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Ophelia Field, who is the director of the University of Buckingham's postgraduate programme on biography. But she has also written a book about Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, called The Favourite, as well as a book on the Kit Kat Club, subtitled Friends Who Imagined a Nation. And I want to talk about both those books in a minute, Ophelia. But before that, can you tell us a bit about your course at the University of Buckingham? Uh, it's a postgrad course, so that's people doing MAs and PhDs. Uh, yes, Professor Jane Ridley set it up, and it's been um, running successfully for some time. We have people doing all sorts of different biographical subjects and really looking at that as a, a historical discipline in its own right. And there are lots of other courses out there that do sort of life writing and memoir in a bigger sense. Yeah. I think the only one that really teaches people how to read and write traditional biography of that sort. And so would you describe yourself as more of a biographer than a historian? Certainly. My academic background was more in English literature than history. And when I came to write about Sarah Churchill, I had no more expertise in the period than, you know, the average educated person. So I sort of had to teach myself the context alongside my subject, basically. And I guess on your course at the University of Buckingham, you're passing on the skills that you had to learn yourself. Yeah, well, and teaching people how important it is to learn the context of the time of the person they're writing about. So where did you start with Sarah? Did you go right back to original sources? I think I would have been lost if I'd gone straight to the archives. I tell my students I started actually with secondary sources and understood the sort of history that had been written at the Times first and only then went back and tried to do my own primary research in the, the archives, which uh, in the case of Sarah Churchill, she has this absolutely vast amount of material that she left behind about her life and her opinions of everybody in the Times. And it was a absolutely mammoth undertaking. <laughs> <laughs> and so was she your starting point or were you interested in the era and came to her? No, I was interested in her and from her the era. So it was that way around. But, you know, luckily, as I say, she did have this kind of extremely broad uh, opinion about everything going on and, and involvement in so many different areas. I guess she was in a pretty unique position. I mean, through her husband, the Duke of Marlborough, she must have been very plugged into what was going on in the war and in the rest of Europe. And through Anne, she was at the heart of the royal court and plugged into what was going on there. Yeah. I mean, she was above all this extraordinary intermediary and she was sort of fighting the war on the domestic front for him in terms of maintaining political support for the war while he was fighting it on the battlefield. So they were an extraordinary partnership, as I say, in a way that all our ideas about marriages not being also friendships and things in that period. Well, she was supporting him in ways that went far beyond just being a wife and mother and so on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he seemed to have wildly switched between being everybody's favourite man at court and everybody hating him and trying to get rid of him. Yes. <laughs> and Sarah saw that coming. So she spent a lot of years trying to save him from being 
ejected and then covering up the likelihood of his fall and defending him in, even after he died until her own death, you know, really fighting his corner. So she stayed loyal to him. Yeah, absolutely. Did he have political ambitions? Well, one of the concerns that people had about him was that he was interested in ruling himself. He kept being offered these, well, he got offered this, the principality of Mindelheim, and then he also uh, at one point was offered to rule the Spanish Netherlands. So that gave people back in England the sense that, okay, this guy may have these ambitions. And there was a question at the time that Anne died about whether he sort of was bringing an invasion force to defend the Hanoverian succession, or was he bringing it for his own end. So there were these kind of questions around him. But basically, no, I don't think he really was. He wanted security and power, but he mm. wanted those uh, to he, serve He was happier in the saddle. Exactly. exactly. Than in the Houses of Parliament. Yeah. <laughs> it seems quite unusual at the time to have a, a, a loving couple like this, with both of them supporting each other and sticking with each other. Their marriage wasn't without its ups and downs. I mean, you know, he did have infidelities and there were times when he used Sarah. Her personality um, is always contrasted this hysterical woman versus more reasonable men around her. But actually, <laughs> there were plenty of instances where he sort of used her more fiery and more frank ways of expressing things to say things that he couldn't say. He was very happy for her to communicate his views to the Queen in ways that he couldn't do himself. And, you know, sometimes she wrote really sort of extraordinarily strong letters, which we we can see in the archive he has approved her sending. Right. So it's not like she was doing this in some, <laughs> you know, off-the-cuff way. Yeah. I think he sort of was a little bit cynical in how he tried to use Sarah. But um, other than, that's the worst I can say of him, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Anne sometimes being characterised as being a bit weak, but she seems to me to have been pretty tough, particularly when she had so much to contend with, her endless miscarriages, her ill health. But she seemed to create this powerful female court. Nobody tried to influence government through Anne's husband or her male mm. contacts mm. in the same way that they tried to influence it through her female friends. And that does tell you something. There was a understanding of the women having a kind of um, intimacy and influence that was slightly different. Mm. And would I be fair in saying that when Anne came to the throne, the men in Parliament thought, OK, she'll be a bit of a pushover, we can do whatever we want, but, but she proved them wrong? I think the assumption that people made when Anne came to the throne was more that the Marlboroughs would rule her, that she would be under right. the control of Sarah and John. And actually, I mean, there were plenty of reasons for Sarah and John themselves to think that, that they had plenty of evidence from her behaviour towards them and letters to them and that Sarah's friendship with Anne that dated back right to their childhood would then grant her actual influence over policy. But that didn't happen. She seemed to quite quickly get close to her politicians and work with them. And that really wrong-footed the Marlboroughs, basically. They were as surprised as anyone else. But then they had to cover up the fact that they weren't really influencing anything for a while. <laughs> or at least Sarah wasn't really influencing anything. She suddenly became just this sort of um, servant of the household, talking to Anne about her, you know, glove orders and petticoats and things. Mm. But she had to pretend she had some influence over high policy. So you're saying that this idea that Sarah was sort of dictating things was a 
fabrication of Sarah's and that she didn't have as much influence in court as she liked to make out? Because of the worries of the time, Sarah didn't want to be seen as a woman influencing policy, but nor was she contradicting the general impression that that Mm. might be the case. And in fact, most of what she writes is about her frustrations at being powerless, at being unable to influence Anne in the ways that she wanted to, because Sarah had very firm political views that she thought were for the national good and was incredibly frustrated to be in that proximity to the most powerful person and apparently loved by them and still not be able to make any of the things Mm. happen. So the Marlboroughs seem to have made a bad mistake and underestimated Anne. That becomes clear as the years go on in that because they had known Anne from when she was very young, they had an image of her that was as she was as a girl, that they never really let go of. They didn't really Mm. understand that her character could change and that through the process of becoming a queen and the experience of that authority, that she might in fact gain in uh, ability and confidence and and form Mm. a different personality than the one they had always attributed to her. And Sarah seems to have tried to take her revenge on Anne by painting a pretty unflattering portrait of her in her memoirs. I certainly think in terms of posterity, Sarah has had a huge influence on the history of how Anne has been perceived. I think Sarah's account, published in 1742, really set the tone for weak history. But even before that, when Sarah and John were exiled, self-imposed exile after their fall from power, one of the things they did is they went to Hanover and got their version of events understood by exactly those people who then came in in 1714. So their narrative, and Sarah's mm. narrative in particular, because she was the real narrator of that couple, yeah. shaped the way that the Hanoverians then regarded the Whig, the, the Tory party and kept them in the political wilderness for, for so long. And yes, and her kind of caricatures of Anne is this sort of very stubborn woman who uh, you know she has this story about uh, her and Mary when they were children arguing about whether thing in the distance was a man or a tree and <laughs> even because they both had eye problems they both had kind of yeah. real myopia kind of thing and when they finally get up close enough to see that it is a man and just sort of turns her back and stomps her foot and says it's a tree it's a tree <laughs> and this kind of these, as I say, these sort of images from childhood that are quite right. sort of infantile and things get projected onto this kind of, this is who she is as a, as an older woman and monarch, uh, and this kind of inability to listen to rational argument and to be the puppet of other people and so on, which, you know, was unfair. Sarah herself, she lived a very much longer life than Anne, and by the time she herself died, she knew she'd been unfair to Anne, I think, and was quite nostalgic, actually, for, mm. for Anne's reign. I mean, I mean, that stubbornness sounds more like a description of Sarah than of Anne. Than that Anne seemed to have been quite good at, at, at kind of using people against each other and bending with the wind a bit. Jonathan Swift called her confounded trimming and moderation. She was, <laughs> Anne was very good at um, being this kind of ballast yes. between the parties and... Um, again, Sarah, because she was a brilliant writer apart from anything else, just has lots of little anecdotes like a, uh, a scene after Anne's husband dies when the servants are lined up and Anne's been sort of supported and walked down between the lines of servants. And the way she just, as she, Sarah says, she leans like a sail. This sort of idea of her just always leaning to one side or another between the parties <laughs> or between things. This is sort of this like, way. Like a stately galleon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Sarah was very ideologically dogmatic. So in that sense, she was the person stomping her foot and saying, it's a tree, it's a tree. But on the <laughs> other hand, Sarah had this quick wit and this ability to wind around arguments and, and, and as I say, spin narratives and things. Um, and she was open-minded. She was more liberal if, in terms of that, things like attitudes to the dissenters and so on. She mm. thought Anne as being illiberal and quite sort of fixed in various religious principles and things that Sarah didn't have much time for. So from our point of view, she was sort of a progressive in that sense. So the two of them first met when Anne was a child. I mean, was she instantly drawn to Sarah? Did it start as a kind of childhood crush? Was it anything more than that? I think a childhood crush is an appropriate thing to say when they first meet, when, you know, Anne's about 10 and Sarah's about 15. Yeah. Anne, as I'm sure you've, you've covered, was a very sad and lonely girl. Yeah. And by the time she's 16, she's not just lost her mother when she was very young, but she's also had her the governor she was closest to thrown out. She's lost six of her siblings have died. Her father's sort of semi-extranged and has married somebody only about six years older than her. Her sister's gone off to the Netherlands. She's on her own. It's no wonder that she was looking for someone to be like family to her, to be close. And she did have this kind of crush and this very charismatic older girl. But as they actually then become friends and it, and the relationship moves on, I, I think it was just love is what we have to say. There was a love there on Anne's side, which even through her marriage, which you know she had a happy marriage and so on, her relationship with Sarah was really the most important relationship in her life for a very mm. long time. But there's no real evidence that this was in any way a physical relationship. Of course, we'll never know what else went on when they were younger. I mean, Anne was in very poor health, even from quite a young yeah. age. So there's all that side of it too. But I think Anne's emotional attachment to Sarah shouldn't be understated. I don't want to poo-poo the possibility that that ever spilled over into anything physical because it's like, you know, who knows? But it's 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 what's important from a biographical and historical point of view is not treating it as just a childish thing because I think the, the historians and biographers who have just referred to it as just an adolescent crush and just been really scathing about the possibility that it had this sort of romantic importance in her life, yeah, just not giving that relationship enough credit. Yeah, it was obviously a very intense friendship, which I suppose is one of the reasons that when they did fall out, they fell out so heavily. And is it true to say that Abigail replaced Sarah as her favourite? I mean, can you just talk us through what happened? Because I skipped over it because I knew I had you on. I yeah. thought I will let Ophelia oh, no. talk us through this. <laughs> well, essentially, Abigail started off, I think, filling a void that Sarah had left because Sarah stopped coming to attend on Anne. It had always been tiresome to her. She described it as being boring, so dull that it was like being in a dungeon to have to hang around Anne all the time. <laughs> but, then, but then she, for various other reasons, Sarah just stops bothering to go to court and to, right. to put in her time beside the Queen. That gives Abigail, who Sarah has put there, and again, this is the part of the story that doesn't get told, that it's really Sarah who has rescued her cousin, Abigail, from... Uh, obscurity and poverty and helped her and all her siblings to get jobs, to get educations. Right. And, one, and she says she even nursed Abigail through smallpox with her own hands. So Abigail is in this position close enough to the Queen to step into that void. Then I think Robert Harley realises that he also has a familial connection to Abigail. 
and Abigail does become a tool of the um, or a conduit, an intermediary, whatever you want to call it, um, of Harley's anti-war faction. And whether a lot of this was exaggerated and seemed sort of became paranoia for Sarah that Abigail was being much more directly political than she was. She's neither the kind of monstrous, ignorant chambermaid that Sarah portrayed her as, but there is fire behind that smoke. Did she have a strong influence over Anne? Did she change anything? I think she allowed access to the Queen. She was a communication channel and a, and a sort of gatekeeper in a way that allowed the shift that Anne wanted to make anyway away from the Marlboroughs in order to end the war. Right. She sort of allowed, she okay. facilitated that by being in a position right there at Anne's side. And the sort of accusations of sexual impropriety, shall we say, okay. were coming from Sarah, but also from some politicians. Yes, I mean, this is the thing that these this talk of lesbianism isn't some just completely anachronistic historical thing that has been thrown back from the 21st or 20th centuries. It is very much the debate at the time, thanks mm. to Sarah. Um, and she knew it was a self-implicating accusation. She knew that as the person who had been most intimate with Anne for the longest, that the power of the, her accusation was precisely because it came from her. And so she was accusing Anne then of this unnatural relationship with Abigail, of having no inclination for any but your own sex and so on. And she did it in various ways. She collaborated uh, with Arthur Mannering, who one of uh, a Whig MP, to write various uh, pieces of satire and so on. That then she <laughs> she then took or sent to Anne and said, "Look at what everyone's saying about you." Yes. <laughs> As your friend, I've got to warn you. Your reputation's really you've got to watch out, kind of thing. But you know, she memorized ballads and sang them at private parties and things. She was, you know. Being, Sarah was being very two-faced in that sense. There was even a suggestion that there would be a um, parliamentary motion to eject Abigail from service in Anne's bedchamber, which would have been really scandalous because that would have been as good as saying there is a unnatural sexual relationship here that is corrupting government. It's very interesting looking at all this because there's a lot of people these days are talking about the coarsening of public debate and how politics is turning very dirty and the sort of Daily Mail approach to scandal and gossip and the rise of the scandal mags and social media and and satires being written about people. But it seems that this was going on just as much back then. Absolutely. I think there are um, real parallels, frankly, because it was the first time that this sort of bipartisan, really strong party self-identification had mm. sort of taken over and become the determining factor of the way society was organized and and so on and, and so you know you have lots of commentators people saying look at how polarized we've become and it feeling like it had reached a completely unprecedented level and Anne's one of them and the queen is one of those people saying you know i need to rise above this and that yeah and presenting that as in her case regal in other cases you know aristocratic virtue a lot of aristocrats or because john churchill duke of marlborough said the same thing you know i want he thought it was propaganda and the, mm. the newspapers the since the lapse of the licensing act there had been this explosion of press and publications and 
I mean, Sarah and Robert Harley were really a pair in that sense on opposite sides in that they really understood the importance of this stuff and used it yeah. and didn't just ignore it. I mean, there's lots of Sarah saying she's not going to stoop to answer various Grub Street slander yeah. things, yeah. but actually she was fully engaged as an author and commissioner and <laughs> everything in it. And similarly, Robert Harley was sort of first one, you know, commissioning people like Daniel Defoe to write things. Well, this is perhaps a good point to move on and look at the other book you've written about this era, your book on the Kit Kat Club, subtitled Friends Who Imagined a Nation. So, as I see it, the Kit Kat Club was a place for influential men to get together. Uh, uh, there were politicians like Robert Walpole, but also writers and playwrights like William Congreve and important men like the architect John Vanbrugh. So, I mean, can you tell us a bit about how it came to be? Ah, well, the Kit Kat Club, it started off as a sort of um, a publisher's dinner back in uh, the 1690s. It began as a publisher called Jacob Thompson, who would basically get together young authors. And in exchange for sort of first rights to publish what they wrote, he would feed them on Kit Kat meat pies. So it started as a more literary thing. And then it um, developed the sort of cultural kudos of it began to attract and involve Lord Summers, who was one of the very early founding members, was a major political figure. So they began to then feed into it um, political members, and it became a much more um, Whig, Junto-supporting club that ran through Anne's reign and really, yeah, defended that that sort of Whig position. Uh, why was it called the Kit Kat Club? Because, well, okay, so the, the pies were cooked originally by a Mr. Christopher Cat or Catling, who ah, right. his pies were therefore named after him as Kit Kats. Um, so the first Kit Kats were pies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, was this the first of this sort of, uh, I, mean, I mean, I suppose it was a gentleman's club. Mm -hmm. It was. I mean, there had been um, clubs that were, seen more as sort of seditious and things in right. very uh, before then there were and there were also things like Dryden's circle at his coffee house and so on but this was the first club that started to sort of formalize open about its existence and had a membership and a certain number of members and various rituals at its meetings and things it started to found all those things that then became gentlemen's clubs and it, you know towards the end of its time it also found a clubhouse and it, you know it started to, to really institutionalize itself and then through Addison and Steele who were members and wrote a lot about clubs in their journals it, it becomes the sort of true source for the proliferation of clubs that then takes over mm. British society. So I mean did the Tories try and set up their own rival club yes. at the time? There were definitely Tory political rival clubs as well but the, the Tory literary one I think has had much greater fame because the writings of Pope and Swift has been more popular than the writings of the literary Kit Kats, like Addison right. Steele, at least in the longer term. And then the political clubs, well, they didn't have quite the solidarity and level of membership that the Kit Kat Club. The Kit Kat Club mm. was more cohesive than most of them and lasted a lot longer. And I think it had advantages that the Tory clubs didn't quite have. It had a good snappy name for a start. It did, so and it also good. it did combine think, different elements. It wasn't just a political club. Yeah. It was just a yeah. literary club. It had all these different aspects to it, and something about putting it all together was quite... Effective. And was it able to exert influence? 
Well, because it had so many members of the Whig Junto in it, there isn't. It's difficult to disentangle what's it, it, its influence versus just Whig Junto influence, by which I mean the sort of five or six most sort of powerful people in the yeah. party. But I think it's more that the Kit Kat Club was a useful place to talk, to have conversations before a government cabinet was really a thing. It's it's meetings on a Thursday. Uh, evening were a place to have um, yeah. conversations and build consensus around things in a way that there wasn't really any other venue to do that. So what is the meaning of the subtitle, Friends Who Imagined a Nation? The meaning is that they have their fingers in a lot of pies in the sense right. that they a lot of cultural pies in the sense that they quite systematically take an interest in trying to raise uh, the level of British culture to be appropriate to match the rising position of Britain in the world as Marlborough starts to win these battles and the foundations of a much more powerful country are being established. Mm. They are very conscious. I'm originally Australian and they had a bit of what in Australia we used to call <laughs> cultural cringe. They have the sort of idea of like, why don't we have this literature of France or whatever, you know, and so they, right, yes. they, they really set about fairly systematically to try to promote uh, English literature, English styles of architecture, English styles of painting, English styles of music and opera and, you know, all these different things that they were trying to create a sort of national identity with. Right. And then in their own sort of modelling of what they thought an English gentleman should be and the way that Addison and Steele wrote about what an English gentleman should be, they were also trying to just promote quite a a Whig version of Englishness, of what it means to be a sort of urbane mm. Englishman <laughs> at that and period. And did that, did that stick, as it were? Did that become the sort of dominant? Yeah, culture? I mean, it was very dominant. It sort of became what had been initially seen as a Whig traits and things became common sense, became just taken for granted. They definitely were sort of image makers in that way. And that's really interesting. So it's, so it's like they're sort of trying to define what an English gentleman is and also what English culture is. I, I mean, they seem to be pretty successful. I think it was more influential in some areas than others. Certainly um, the sort of idea that we had a English literature to be proud of was something that Alison achieved. And the idea that things should be not as ornate and baroque as the French and Italian styles mm. and everything. There was, there was something there that did have an influence through architecture in the houses they built to themselves and so on. It's very interesting because just the other day, Lord Bragg gave an impassioned speech in the House of Lords about the importance of arts to the country, not just culturally, but also financially and, and how they help to define our identity and inform how the world views us. So, you know, I guess some contemporary politicians, like the Whigs of the Kit Kat Club, do care about these things. But many Tory politicians today, while they love our old country houses and our Queen Anne architecture and our stately landscaped estates, created, it has to be said, by enclosing common land. Yes, while they get misty-eyed about what all that represents to them, they couldn't give a toss about art and music and culture. So hats off to the Kit Kat Club and its enlightened members. And hats off to my guest on this episode, Ophelia Field. I mean, there's so much more we could have talked about, Ophelia. But as this is already a rather long episode, 
we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And just to remind my listeners, if you do want to go away and find out more for yourselves, you should dig out Ophelia's books, The Favourite and The Kit Kat Club. And make sure you join me next time for what was, it has to be said, an extraordinary development in our royal history, when a relatively obscure German princeling, George of Hanover, leapfrogged over 54 more deserving contenders to become King of Great Britain. See you then. Follow the podcast now to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Willy Willy Harry Steve was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Steve, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2024. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.